good morning and welcome again to Grace Bible Church. I am always thankful for the opportunity to be here with you worshiping our Lord together. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, my recent health difficulties have clearly shown me the privilege I have in standing before you. Uh, I, I, this past summer has been an interesting, interesting summer for me. I, I have been able to see clearly the privilege that I have in opening God's Word and teaching you from it from week to week. I try not to concern myself. I, I work hard not to concern myself with the number of people who are attending. I don't worry about that. I let. I try not to worry about that. I'm going to admit that uh, before you now that there are times when I do, um, I do wonder. But ultimately, I know uh, I need to let the Lord handle that part. I am rewarded for my labor by watching your response to God's word. I I just pray even a, even a small part of it. Just last week, God privileged me to lead the, the Friday small group through First Corinthians 13 as we. Uh, reviewed Richard Lemon's sermon. On Sunday morning, God blessed me to teach the men out of 1 Thessalonians 1. Uh, we had a rich time digging into God's Word. After that, I was granted the privilege on Sunday morning, just like this, this morning, of preaching God's Word from His pulpit. Then I had the opportunity to teach the men on Monday morning. Let me tell you, by the end of that weekend, as always, I was worn out. But it was a good worn out. It was encouraging the Lord always refreshes my heart. I do this, I pray that I do this, and I know I'm a, I'm a sinful man, and I can feel the, the glory of God at times. I can try to feel it anyway. No, there's no way I can feel it, obviously. But I, I do it for His glory. I do this because, as I often say, uh, I know that the, uh, God's Word will not re- return void or empty. It's interesting that a uh, couple of the young men, three of the young men here, prayed for me this morning before we started, and, and in one of their prayers, they, they brought up Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, it's the Lord's promise that His Word would not return void. Now, just listen to verses 6 through 13 in Isaiah. It says, it's starting in verse 6, six Seek Yahweh while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to Yahweh, and he will have compassion on him and to our God. And he will abundantly abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways, are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth, making it bare and, and sprout, and giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. This is by Isaiah 55.11. So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return empty without accomplishing what it pleases me, what pleases me, and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. For you will go out with gladness and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth with shouts of joy before you. And the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn, the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. And instead of the nettle, the myrtle, myrtle will come up. And it will be to Yahweh for His renown, for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. Beloved, I don't place my 
confidence in the ways of men. Left to our own devices, left to my devices, I'll say it that way, left to man's devices, we will always go awry. I place my confidence in God's Word from Genesis to Revelation. I only pray that GBC, that Grace Bible Church, will be a small part in leading God's people to worship Him. And that's ultimately the reason I stand here to preach. That's why I labor in the Word to teach and preach. My joy is to see the Lord glorified in the church, and I know that He's glorified through His Word. My great desire is to see Him glorified in the world that He created. I want to see Him carry out His plan of redemption. I long to see Christ the King exalted. And I look forward to the, with great anticipation to the day when at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. I hope you join me in that as well. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. And may my words always be seasoned with salt. Always be your word. May I be a man who, if you were to cut me, would bleed the word of God. Father, I pray that this church would be saturated by your word. Father, that we would truly build our house, our homes on the solid rock of Christ and his word. Father, this morning I pray that you would be with me, your preacher, that I would decrease and you would increase. In Christ's name, amen. As we return to our current series called The Battle from the Beginning, uh, as I said, this is the last of that series, this last sermon, I want to draw your attention to the number of allusions to creation in Isaiah 55, which we just read. It says in verse 9, For as the heavens are higher than the earth. It says in verse 10, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout, and giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. In these verses, in these verses that I just read, Isaiah is clearly referring to creation. He's borrowing from the language of Genesis 1-3 through to make his point, is he not? I can't emphasize enough the importance of creation and understanding creation and the importance of creation itself in God's redemptive plan. You see, God wants us to enjoy Him. But He wants us to enjoy Him in all that He has made. In all the things that He's made to bring glory to Him. One day soon, I believe, I believe the Scripture teaches that Jesus will return and He will reign on earth. He will redeem His creation. Isaiah 55.12 captured that incredible truth. The mountains and the hills will break forth in the south of joy before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. You see, God will redeem His people, and all of creation will shout for joy at man's re- redemption. Verse 13, which we just read again, instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. Instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. Clearly, there will be a day when God will make everything new. He will redeem man and creation. He will accomplish this through the finished work of Jesus, His Son, who will dwell with us. 
You know, when I teach, I try to remind you to remember the context of the passage. In context, Isaiah 55 comes after Isaiah 52 and 53. It is the Lord Jesus, the suffering servant, who will prosper. He will be high and lifted up. He will be greatly exalted. Isaiah 53 says, Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and the chastening of our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging we are healed. <coughs> Matthew, later in Revelation, recorded the events leading up to the crucifixion of our Lord. They put a crown of thorns on His head, and they put a reed in His right hand, the crown is a symbol of royalty and majesty. The reed in his right hand signified the ruler's death. And then they, as you well know, they hung him on a tree. The one who created the world, the rightful king of the world, hung on a tree. He was hung on a, the tree he created. Think about that. All three, the thorns, the reed, and the cross point back to Genesis chapter 1 through 3. God made man to rule his creation. He made man to be royalty. We clearly saw this when we studied <coughs> Genesis 1 26 to 28. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and all the cattle over all the earth. Fill the earth and subdue it. Ultimately, those verses are fulfilled in His Son. Ultimately, those verses are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ who will rule over creation. Yet at the cross, as we saw in Matthew, He was mocked. He was despised. We did not esteem Him. Yet, <clears throat> yet according to Paul in 1 Timothy 16, He is the King of kings and the King, King of kings and the Lord of lords. Yet he suffered for his people. Here's the question. Why did Jesus, the Son of God, suffer for his people? That's the psalmist question. We, we looked at Psalm 8 last week. That's the psalmist question. What is man you would take thought of him? And son of man, if you would care for him. Ultimately, it's because Yahweh created man to know him. To have an intimate relationship with him. An intimate knowledge. We see this level of intimacy in the, the language of Genesis two seven. Then the Lord God formed the man of, of the dust of formed man of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And, and the God of Genesis chapter one, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. And He is also Yahweh Elohim, who, according to Exodus 34, 6, is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. That's the same Yahweh, that's the same God as Elohim. Created man, this God who's high and lofty and lifted up. I can't emphasize that enough. This same God had a level of intimate knowledge that we can't 
and we have a, an intimate relationship with him that we it's, that words are hard to describe. So I think that's the reason why <coughs> in Genesis chapter two we'll we'll see that the first marriage is shown there, the marriage between man and woman, because. In, in the marriage relationship, we see uh, just a glimpse of this intimacy that God wants to have with man. And we see in Ephesians 5, as uh, you may know, Paul instructed the husbands to love their wives as Christ loves the church. That's a direct, that's a direct idea that he takes directly from Genesis 2. As he described the ideal love of a husband, he quoted Genesis 2.24, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. He used this description to describe Christ's love and sacrifice for the church. As I said last week, there's gold in Genesis 2. And I hope that today we can, you can, I can help you understand why Paul used Genesis 2 to pen those beautiful words in Ephesians 5. But before that, let me catch us quickly up to speed. In Genesis 1, we saw the account of creation. God created the world and all its hosts in six days, and He rested on the seventh. Genesis 2, 1-2 gives us the summary statement of Genesis 1. He says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all the hosts. We know from Genesis 1.31 that God, that Elohim's creation was very good. It was complete. It had no flaws. It was perfect. In Genesis 2, Moses begins to describe Elohim's creation of man. In that chapter, he refers to God, as I mentioned earlier, as Yahweh Elohim. He does this to show that the God of creation who is lofty and transcendent is the same God who created man to have that intimate relationship with him. Again, he's the same God of Exodus 34 who is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. As a matter of fact, in Exodus, God refers himself as Yahweh, to himself as Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim. That, that verse in, that, where he says that in, in Exodus 34 emphasizes the relational nature of Yahweh by using that name twice. But it also refers and shows us that, that, that God is transcendent and that he's full of majesty. Here's the truth. Those two concepts are inseparable. They're inseparable. In Genesis 2, Moses focuses on God's relationship with man. Now, now we've been working through the same outline for the past few weeks. Let me quickly again get us up to speed. And in Genesis 2, five to, or two, in Genesis 2, from verse 5 to 25, Moses focuses on the creation of man and the woman on day 6. In that chapter, in chapter 2, he shows that the Elohim of Genesis 1 is a relational God. Moses does this by showing first man's importance. Verses 4 through 6. In those verses, we saw that man is important to creation. If you have your text, notice in verse 5, creation was waiting for man. Waiting for man before the, the, before the plants were sprouted. Creation needed man so that, that those would be brought forth. Creation then, instead of being a, a, a tree hugger, creation is, is a man hugger. The creation needs man. Look quickly at 
verse 7, where we see the second picture of God's intimacy with man. Man's creation. This is Genesis 2.7. It says, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and He breathed into His nostrils the breath of life. Here we see again this intimacy between God and man. God literally gave the man the breath, uh, gave man the breath of life. He doesn't do this with the other animals, or with other with animals. That is, he he does this only with man. Again, this this beautiful picture emphasizes the intimacy of God between God and man, and also reinforces the importance of of man. Should again, your question should be. A, the same as the psalmist in Psalm 8. Why? Why? Why would a God who is high and lofty and lifted up, why would He, why would he find man important? We are nothing but the dust of the ground. And we saw man's dwelling place in verse 8. God planted a beautiful place for the man to dwell. We can't, uh, I can't overemphasize the beauty of this place. It was perfect. It was, it was good according to Genesis 1.31. It was the perfect place for man to live and enjoy creation and the Creator. Later in the Pentateuch, God dwelled in the tabernacle among the people of Israel. This pointed back to the garden where He dwelt with Adam and Eve. It also, this, the tabernacle pointed back to where He dwelt with Adam and Eve, and it points forward. It reminds us that, that we're going to return to that heavenly city, and He will dwell with man in the future. That's Revelation 21, verses 22 and 23. So according to Moses, man is important. Now when I say man, let me make sure you all understand. Uh, mankind, male and female... There's no, in that sense, in terms of the importance of man and woman, there's no difference. We'll see later. Uh, we'll, we'll explain that more later. But I want to make sure that we understand. I, I, I know in this culture of, you know, we want to make sure that we're, we're looking at both sides the same way. I want us to have a right theology of man and woman. I want us to have a right, right theology. So with that, man, mankind is important to God. He has been specially and intimately made by God, and He has been given this incredible dwelling place. Now, let's look at the fourth, uh, review the fourth picture of God's intimacy with man, man's work and responsibility. Man, man's work, in verse 15, He took the man, He put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. So God gave man work to do. Now, this was unlike what we think of work. It was not toil. Yesterday, I helped my son build a shed to store his equipment. I, I toiled. I worked hard. I was soaked from head to toe by the time we finished. Well, we didn't really finish, but you get the picture. In Eden, there was no working by the sweat of the brow. It didn't work that way. Work was, was, a, was more like rest. Man's work was good. Man's burden was light. I just mentioned that God's dwelling in, in the tabernacle pointed back to the garden. In the same way, the priest's work in the tabernacle was a type of Adam's work in the garden. And again, that points forward to the future when we'll dwell with God eternally. Here in Genesis 2, man's work was very good. It was very good. Man also had a responsibility. In verse 16, it says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any of the three, any three of the garden you may eat freely. God gave man, the man almost total freedom. Have you thought about that? He gave him almost total freedom. 
as he lived and worked in the garden. He allowed him to enjoy the fullness of that perfect place. He even dwelled with him. But he did have one responsibility. You might say one law. He told him not to eat from one tree. He says, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. So as the man ate from that tree, then, according to God, he would surely die. Now, at this point, what we have to understand is, or at least I'm not certain that the man had any idea of what death meant. He'd never been exposed to it. So when God says you will surely die, what was he left to do? Well, he was left to trust God's Word, right? I mean, that's all he had. He didn't have, he didn't have an experience that said, hey, I know what death is, and I need to stay away from that. The question was whether or not he was going to trust Yahweh's Word, that death was no good. Now look at Genesis 18 to 20. Let's look at man's loneliness. Or you could say man's incompleteness. I think that's a good way to put it. It says in verse 18, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable. Now, we have to understand, that's God's perspective. God knew that the man was incomplete, and he was without a helper suitable for him. The, the word translated suitable has the idea of like what is in front of him. This could be understood as one corresponding to him. So you could translate this, this phrase as a helper corresponding to him. The term help has the sense of aid and support. The psalmist uses this term in, in Psalm 121. Uh, this is amazing. This is amazing. The psalmist uses the same term in one, Psalm 121, uh, verses 1 through 2. And I know, I know most of you, many of you heard, heard this. I will lift my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord, from Yahweh, who made the heaven and earth. Wow. So Yahweh made the woman as one corresponding to the man to be his help and support. But that was God's perspective. Again, man didn't, of himself, man didn't know. I mean, he'd never experienced this fact. So he didn't know. So what does God do? Man could not have known. He was incomplete. So God does something pretty amazing, actually. He paraded all the animals in front of the man uh, for, them, for him to name them. Now, naming them shows that God had, had uh, given him a delegated authority over the animals to the man. And, and it fulfills that mandate that man would rule over the earth as God's vice regent from Genesis 1, 26-28. But it also has the purpose of showing him that there was no helper suitable for him. As the animals paraded by the man, he didn't find one corresponding to him in form, in form or function. Now, it could be, it could have been that, that God brought the animals two by two, male and female, so that the man could see that there were pairs of animals, male and female. And, and if he saw that they were male and female, and, and that he could deduce that he himself was alone, there wasn't anyone for him. That, I mean, that's possible. But here's what we have to understand. The text doesn't say that. The text doesn't say that. The text only tells... Oh, oh by the way, we, that, that is a principle. We need to be careful not to go beyond the text. I mean, I'm not saying that... I mean, I can understand why we would arrive at that. I mean, if you look at, at Genesis 6, the, the God brought the animals, right, in pairs. So it would make sense that potentially he's doing the same thing here. But the text doesn't say that. It says that clearly in Genesis 6. 
It doesn't say that in Genesis 2. The only thing the text says, tells us is that God brought the animals for Adam to name. And at the end of that process, there was not found one who corresponded to him, not found one who would aid him. The man was alone, and that was not good. But God would change that situation. Let's look at man's helpmate. Man's helpmate. Genesis 2, 21-24. Look at verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. So Yahweh God causes the man to fall into this deep sleep. Now, this is the same Hebrew phrase used in Jonah to describe his slumber, Jonah's slumber, as he slept through that great storm. The deep, the deep sleep ensures that the, the man was not able to observe or be any part of the woman's creation. Her creation then was fully the work of God, just like his creation, Adam's creation, the man's creation was fully the work of God. Now, his sleep also allows him to enjoy the surprise of her appearance, and we're going to see that in a moment. The man's sleep is God's special work similar to Abraham's slumber in Genesis 15, 12. Now, you may not be familiar with this, but God ratified the Abrahamic covenant, and when he did so, he caused a deep sleep to fall upon Abram. And, and I mean, this was a supernatural sleep where God ratified uh, himself, ratified the Abrahamic covenant. Let's just say that Adam was in a very deep sleep. He was, there was no waking him up. Only an act of God would wake him. Now, while he was asleep, God performed divine surgery on him. It says he took, in verse 21, he says he, then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. Surely we have to recognize the mystery here. Right? I mean, we... Moses doesn't give us a detailed blow-by-blow of the procedure. Most likely, your, your Bible translation says that God removed one of Adam's ribs. And we people discuss that all the time. Did he really take one of Adam's ribs, or was it something else? But I, I would say that this translation is as good as any. You may ask, why would, why would God use the man's rib or side? And I, I think that the text indicates the answer. And remember one corresponding to? So... Put that, uh, put that right here, and then, and then let me, let me go, go forward. So, look at verse 22. It says that Yahweh God fastened into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Now, in modern vernacular, God used the rib and the flesh uh, around it to harvest the man's DNA. I mean, that's, I mean we, we know that. We know that from science, that, it's, that DNA exists, and, and that is... A, you know how he did it. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how he did it, but you know what I'm saying. The the procedure, though, and we know this from science. The procedure ensured that the woman was of the same substance as the man, right? Now we could try to understand why God used the man's side. It's definitely a place that we can say this. It's definitely a place that wouldn't name the man. I mean, it's not like cutting his arm off or, or you know, cutting his head off or cutting his foot off. I mean, he pulled something out of his side. But I think there's something more at play here. And I think it's beautiful. Truly, I would argue that this act was, again, incredibly intimate. 
and, and emphasize the relationship between the man and the woman. You see, the woman was made to be by his side. Think about that. The woman was made to be here by his side. When I woke up from surgery a few weeks ago, my wife was by my side. She, she physically was there. And, and I can tell you there was no other person in the world, there's absolutely no one that I would rather have been there. I, when I opened my eyes, I wanted to see my wife, and that's exactly whose face I saw. Later that night, she had to leave because visiting hours were over. I told her this week, I was, that's why I brought that up, by the way, honey. Um, I, I told her I was angry at her because I was out of my mind, and you know. But I, I, I can't remember a worse feeling than my wife walking out of that, that hospital room. Because she's meant to be by my side, especially in those situations where I need that help and that support. It's not her fault. She tried. Again, I, there's no one more that I want at my side than my wife. Beloved, this was God's design from the beginning. This was His design from the beginning. He designed husbands and wives, the man and the woman, to fit perfectly together. He designed the woman to physically be at the man's side as his helper. I'm always amazed when you walk down the street and you see a man and a woman and how they... It's, just, it's right. It's right. It fits. When I look at you and I see the husbands and wives, it's right. It's good. It's very good. You know, this isn't a popular message today. I wouldn't gain popularity by, you know, preaching this message. But it's no less true. And when fully embraced, there is great beauty in this relationship that's been designed by God. Look back at your text in verse 22. And He brought her to be, to be with the man. Or be, brought her to the man, that is. This was, uh, you could say, the great reveal. At, at most Christian weddings, the groom does not see the bride on wedding day until she is revealed at the back of the room. We've seen that. Many, I mean, in any weddings you've been to, uh, the bride walks through the door in the back of the room, and the groom is standing right here, and, and he sees her along with everybody else in the room, and he sees her in her, all her glory and all her beauty. She arrives with her father who presents her to the groom, again, who is blown away by her great beauty. And this signifies God's revealing the first woman to the first man. There's no ceremony more beautiful than a, than a wedding ceremony. I, 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 can't, I, I love wedding ceremonies. I can't say I, I've always had that idea. But, but even, the sim, even the simplest ones are striking in their beauty. Can you imagine the beauty of that moment where Eve was, where the Father presented Eve to Adam? Look back at your text. Verse 23. I've often said it. The man was so amazed that he broke out into, into poems. He said, this, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. The, the LSB translates this verse. The man said, this one finally, finally is bone of my bones. You see, the, the man had searched all the animals and, and didn't find a helper suitable. Yet when he awoke, 
uh, the, God brought the woman, the, the, and the man could not have been more surprised, more amazed. And, and he, he knew that this was the one. The line, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, emphasizes that, the, that God fashioned the woman uh, from man's flesh and, and bones. She, again, was his DNA. In the words of Kenneth Matthews, he just says it simply, Adam and Eve are the same human stuff. The same. Go back at the text. After naming the animals, the, the man names the woman. And there's a, there's a play on words here in Hebrew. It says, she shall be called woman, or in Hebrew, isha, isha. Because she was taken out of man, or in the Hebrew, ish. She shall be called Isha because she was taken out of East. That ending signifies the, the, the feminine gender, Isha. But it also ha- may have another meaning. It, the, in Hebrew, Ah can signify toward. Uh, the man and the woman move toward one another and correspond to one another. And truly, we have to recognize that God created us uh, man and woman, male and female, from the very beginning. I mean, we have to recognize that. I mean, it's right. Any, anybody would understand that if they just if they weren't blind, blinded by their sin. Any attempt to do something else is shaking our fist at God. Man with man, woman with woman, a man attempting to be a woman, or vice versa. These are all attempts to usurp God's authority and turn the created order upside down. Genesis 2 shows this. But here's what's interesting. God cannot be thwarted. God cannot be thwarted. He will not be mocked. Beloved, this is not political. I can promise you. This is absolute truth. And I'm going to tell you now, we are unloving if we don't proclaim the truth. Love the language of this verse is incredibly intimate and romantic. God has orchestrated the entire scene. This is underscored in in verse 24. Uh, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. We hear that at all the weddings. But right here, what we have is Moses showing the pattern for the family uh, that has been set from the very beginning. Uh, um, the man and the woman are to join together, and as and they join together uh, spiritually and physically, they join together and they become one flesh. They become one. God's model for marriage uh, involves leaving and and separating or separating from our parents, and this includes them uniting with one spouse. Again, this is a a physical and a spiritual union which forms a new family. Children, then, are the natural result of that union. Now, it doesn't mean that everyone's going to have children. It doesn't mean that even everyone's going to get married. Uh, We know that there's exceptions. But the general... The general created order is for the husband or for the man to leave his parents and the woman to leave her parents and become one flesh and have children. That's the general order. Again, there are biblical exceptions. Now, I would argue that there's a public aspect of this union. 
the married couple are to declare their union before God and man. They do this publicly. This is a, a binding commitment. The, the, uh, those around them, the world knows that they have made this commitment to one another. This union, union together is designed to be uh, permanent. As you, as you hear the marriage vows, until what? Until death do you part. Beloved, we would do well to live according to God's pattern. Not, begrud- not begrudgingly. Not out of a sense of duty. Don't just grin and bear it. Right? Make the most of it. Make the most of your marriage. If, you were, if you're here today and you're married, it is a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing. Through all the fights and all the struggle and all everything that you deal with, it, it is a beautiful thing. Embrace it because God has ordained it. And He ordained it from the very beginning. And I would argue that He ordained your marriage. Angie and I were married and, and had children before we were believers. At least one child. Our marriage may have been a mistake from human perspective. We were actually told that we wouldn't last very long. Now, thankfully, we've proved that wrong. But our commitment and bond was no less critical than a marriage between two believers. It was binding. And I believe God has blessed our union. My wife and I, I believe that He has blessed our union as we have remained committed to Him and to one another. Beloved, if we embrace our marriage and our family, we are embracing God's best. Sure, there are those, as I said, who have been gifted with singleness. But generally speaking, God designed us to be fruitful and multiply through the one flesh relationship of marriage. And this is the best way for human flourishing. Flourishing families are one, ones that take seriously the marriage covenant. Flourishing churches are full of uh, couples committed to protect the holiness of marriage. Flourishing cultures are led by flourishing churches that emphasize and uphold the sanctity of the marriage relationship. And that's true if you're, even if you're single. You uphold the marriage relationship. Beloved, if your family is struggling, healing starts with an understanding of and a commitment to God's plan for your marriage and your family. Now, I hope this isn't true for our church, but if, if you're a part of a church that doesn't uphold marriage, healing starts with modeling God's plan in your family as as long as you have fellowship in the church. But if, if you continue to be a part of a church that doesn't uphold marriage and family, who doesn't uphold the male and the female coming together, I would say leave that church. As you watch the culture crash and burn, change can only come through the proclamation of Christ and living as His disciples. Let's look at the final picture of God's intimacy with man. Man's life before the fall. Man's life before the fall. Look at Genesis 2.25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. It just, this just simply describes life as God intended it. Man and, and his wife lived in innocence. They had no knowledge of evil. Life in the garden was blissful to, for them. They had only experienced good because, because God had created everything as very good. That creation was complete. It was perfect. Now, I want you to see that, that Genesis 2.25 and Genesis 1.31 are bookends. 
They're bookends. That he, he, created, he created it very good. And then we see here how that looks like, what that looks like. They were, they were there in the garden. They were with God. They had perfect fellowship with God. So here we've learned several critical truths from Genesis 2. I hope you've seen that, that the, there is much gold, much gold, much gold in this chapter. We've seen that man is important to God, Psalm 8. We've seen man is important to God's creation. That's Romans 8, 19. We've seen, and from chapter 2, man was made to have an intimate relationship with Yahweh God. We've seen that man, or God intends for man to dwell with him and be at rest eternally. That's Revelation 21 and 22. We've seen that God created man to glorify him and, and enjoy him forever. We, we've seen that, man, that God created man to worship him, to, to dwell with him, to enjoy and rule over his creation. We've seen that God created man and woman to have an intimate relationship that models the relationship between God and man, uh, Christ and the church. That we see, as we see that intimate marriage relationship, we get a, a glimpse of that relationship that God created us to have with Him. We also see that God created His world to be very good. Be very good. Back in Genesis 2.25, uh, the man and the woman's union with God and with one another was perfect. They are the only humans who have ever enjoyed perfect communion with God on earth and perfect communion with one another. And this was their normal condition at the time. And this condition, I would argue, was designed to last forever. You see, God, according to Genesis 2, 1-4, God created them. He designed them to be at rest forever. Now, that doesn't mean that God was surprised when Adam and Eve sinned. He, he wasn't. Or better said, Adamson. But here's what's interesting. This will be our condition in the future. I hope you believe that. You see, they dwelled in God's holy presence and were unashamed. They had no knowledge of evil, therefore there was no basis for shame. One day we will dwell with God and there will be no evil. There will be no shame. There will be no depression. We will be in perfect communion with Him and with one another. Oh, for that day we will dwell with Him. Oh, for that day. In perfect communion with Him and with each other. Revelation 21, 3 and 4, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them, and He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, and no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? I hope so. Our only hope, our only hope that Christ has redeemed through His work on the cross, 
has redeemed this world, and that we will see the full fruition of that in the future. So at the end of chapter 2, the world is in harmony, it is complete, and it is good, but this blissful world would not last. In Genesis 3.1, we are introduced to the crafty deceiver. History in our own lives clearly shows us the brokenness of this world. Our own brokenness, our sinfulness, demonstrates then the need for our forgiveness and redemption. Truly, we need to be forgiven for our transgressions against the Holy God, against Elohim, against Yahweh Elohim. We need to be redeemed, bought back from the slave market of sin. And according to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1, 6-8, in Christ we have redemption through His blood shed at the cross. We have been forgiven of our transgressions according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. The LSB says, which He caused, His grace which He caused to abound to us. To abound to us in all wisdom and insight. This was in accordance to the riches of His grace which God caused us to to abound. You see, God has shown mercy toward His people. According to the Apostle Paul, God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their transgressions against them. Beloved, in Christ, if you are in Christ today, you have been redeemed. Redeemed by His blood. Redeemed by His blood. If you're here today and you've not turned from your sins, we beg you, using Paul's language, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. And you might ask, how do you do that? You do it through believing in Christ's sacrifice at the cross. Turning from your sin, turning to Christ, trusting in Him and Him alone. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become uh, the righteousness of God in Him. You see, the Father poured out His wrath on the Son as if the Son were sent. And we get His righteousness. We get to... to, We get His righteousness, righteousness as if we lived His life. You're honest with yourself. You see your sin. You understand your brokenness. If the if the Lord gives you the eyes to see and ears to hear, don't let a moment go by without turning to Him. In Him and Him alone, you will find forgiveness and reconciliation. If the Holy Spirit has laid anything on your heart, believer, if the Holy Spirit has laid anything on your heart in the preaching of this sermon, come see me. Or speak to a mature Christian who can answer your questions. If you are here today and you're an unbeliever, and you know that you need to turn to Christ, you know you've been the, the, the 
it's, it's been laid on your heart that you need to turn to Christ, that you can't trust in your own works, that you need to be saved by His grace through faith, please come see me. Don't let another day go by. Don't let another moment go by. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. Pray, Lord, that you would bless the preaching of this sermon. That again, your word would not return void. We trust that to be true. Father, I pray that I, as the preacher, would trust in you completely. And trust in your word. In Christ's name, amen.